Welcome to Den, the content marketing podcast from Brand Content with me, Sharon Flaherty. And me, Adam Russell. You've borrowed into the home of great content. And in this first episode of many, we'll welcome the greatest minds of our industry as they push the boundaries of technology, format, platform, and expression, moving branded content into remarkable territory. In this first episode of Den, we're exploring a virtual world of immersive content. And joining us is Tom Nelson, who is the creative producer at the Royal Opera House, and he has developed the award-winning Opera Machine. So these aren't just frivolous entertainment projects jumping on the next big thing in marketing, because what's been astutely realised, along with some of the biggest names in the marketing tech world, virtual reality and immersive content is a hot topic, and for good reason. Not only do the experiences drive engagement and provide unrivaled one-to-one time between brands and consumers, by the way, far exceeding any engagement offered by TV or radio adverts, but virtual reality and immersive environments are becoming much more accessible to consumers and loved by consumers, and the technology that supports them is becoming much more affordable for brands, so we're entering a very interesting space. This means the volume of virtual reality-ready gadgets means the opportunity for consumers to engage with this type of content is more far-reaching. Looking sideways to the world of wearable technology, fitness and well-being, wearable tech giant Fitbit discovered its vulnerability earlier this year as its stock tumbled 40% as newer and cheaper rivals entered the marketplace. And immersive content is just a few steps behind. We've had the launch of Cardboard VR and Google isn't resting on its laurels. We've got the VR rig and we are in no doubt there is going to be a lot more to come this year. That can only mean one thing. Google is launching a mass market virtual reality headset. Watch this space. But with news like that hitting the headlines, brands and agencies will be hungry to take up the challenge. Looking across the marketplace, many brands from Volvo to Marriott have already thrown their hat into the ring. The struggle to keep up with the trend is real, and many are leaping on the immersive bandwagon and using the term to describe any visually engaging content. But don't despair. We're not using the term immersive as a hideously wanky marketing buzzword. Oh no. How many times have you been at a run-of-the-mill networking event or conference and heard someone say, this is an immersive experience? Or this concept is immersive. Whether they're just talking to fill the silence or misinformed. The overuse of immersive is downright irritating. And expect more overuse this year. You heard it here first. Now, immersive doesn't mean 3D. Immersive doesn't mean surrounded by dancers and being thrust a goodie bag. Immersive does not mean a Facebook quiz. I hate Facebook quizzes. And yet, immersive is used liberally to sex up dull, flat concepts. Immersive is also used to describe the technology, but the immersive part is always, always the idea and always the experience. When done right, it makes you forget the real world for a small snapshot of time and propels you into a different one, much more than reading a book because nothing is left to the imagination. You see and feel the experience, and if we want to get all buzzwordy, it's multi-sensory. Essentially, it's content that puts the user in the story. Because it can be so captivating and all-encompassing, dwell time is longer because the user actually wants to be there, and they feel like they are too. A brand can't force a user to engage, but immersive content makes them want to. So now joining us is Tom Nelson, the creative producer at the infamous Royal Opera House in London and the award-winning Opera Machine. His work for the Learning and Participation Department encompasses live events, digital firsts, live streaming and exhibitions. And his recent projects include virtual reality initiatives and World Ballet Day. Prior to the Royal Opera House, Tom worked at the BBC Proms in concert management and BBC Radio 3 in production. Thank you for joining us, Tom. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Adam. So, um, Tom, if it's okay, just briefly, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your career, maybe how you started, and then how you eventually came to work on the immersive projects such as the Opera Machine? I'm a musician. Uh, I did a music degree 
uh, back in the day, and uh, I always wanted to be a uh, radio producer uh, leaving university. So uh, I managed to uh, get a job at the BBC after I graduated. From then on, uh, I guess, as the saying goes, my foot was in the door and I was able to move from uh, a BBC job uh, to BBC job. But the thing about uh, producing content for linear radio is that you're, you're given a, a very definitive uh, constraints in which you have to, to work to make the program. You know your program's one hour and you know it's got to be this and it's got to have uh, these various elements, X, Y, Z. And there's very little leeway to, to be truly creative with that. So uh, I came here to the Royal Opera House uh, and I, I uh, ran an events program called the Insights Program. Running a, a sort of a, a program for uh, audiences where you're in, uh, interviewing artists and getting behind the scenes it's much like making a radio program, finding out what's interesting and, and using a few sort of journalistic skills to really dig down and, and uh, make it intriguing for the audience. It feels like you're providing that extra level of depth, almost. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, that's what it's all about, and uh, that's really how my, how my role has developed here. I, I uh, was sort of tasked with finding a way of getting this amazing backstage content uh, out to a wider audience because we put on a, a Royal Ballet rehearsal, for example, for the public, and we could only fit 170 people in the studio. We wanted to share this great content because we knew that there was a real appetite for it. So I thought, well, what if we um, just turn the cameras on uh, for a full day of live, behind-the-scenes content from, from the Royal Ballet for a day and, and, and see what happens? and uh, showcase you know, the working day. We did that back in 2012, and it was called Royal Ballet Live, and um, it, it sort of was a, a massive runaway success for us. Um, it, it was watched 200,000 times on the day, and then the content has been watched uh, millions and millions of times since then. And it really acted as this catalyst for us uh, to launch into live streaming. Our mission statement, uh, uh, really, and what makes us different from any other opera house in the world is that we want to be uh, truly permeable, a building where our artists and our processes are on show uh, in a way that the audience can have a, a, a really meaningful dialogue with us. Live streaming really gave us that platform to be able to do that. So since that first day in 2012, we've um, expanded the program, we've done an opera day, uh, and we now uh, run something called World Ballet Day, which is this huge um, global event that happens once a year. Um, we shared our expertise with, in live streaming with four other global ballet companies, the Australian Ballet, the Bolshoi, National Ballet of Canada and San Francisco Ballet. And we now all come together uh, to do a 24-hour live stream uh, of continuous uh, behind the scenes ballet once a year it's it's incredible just to like you're saying it only started in 2012 that's only a couple of years and it's snowballed i know but you, you know you've got to you've always got to be uh um, moving quite quickly with this stuff otherwise it, it's old i mean i would say that uh, in back in 2012 youtube put a huge amount of resource into live streaming now for them it's it's not it's not a massive thing you've got to strike whilst something is it's really uh, new and current. I think maybe the thing there with like um, YouTube not really putting it at the forefront at the moment is just because I, I guess the audiences are different, aren't they? Like people who are interested in balleting, maybe more classical, maybe maybe more intellectual content, are going to uh, 
uh, appreciate longer form uh, content about that specific subject. That's completely true. Um, the, the, the typical um, viewer time for a YouTube video, I think, is two and a half to three minutes. That's the average view time. When we do a live stream, uh, the average view time is, is touching 30 minutes. YouTube are truly amazed at those figures because very little of their content can reach that sort of um, really deep engagement. So we have a really uh, loyal and rich um, subscription base on, on YouTube that really want that, that deep content. That's fantastic. It, honestly, it blows my mind. Um, so just for our listeners at home, if, if you could just explain the Opera Machine just uh, for maybe those who haven't heard of it, maybe don't know about it, and maybe um, just how would you describe it, just briefly? We, um, uh, every decade or so, um, an opera house, uh, a a big international opera house, needs to put on uh, Wagner's ring cycle. Uh, Richard Wagner, a a German composer who wrote really uh, fantastically deep and long uh, operas. The the ring cycle is four operas, Sixteen hours of music uh, that is performed over four nights, and it's a massive challenge for any opera house to take on because uh, there's there's things like dragons and fire and huge orchestras and singers and everything. It's 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 really uh, gargantuan. And uh, I wanted to try and find a way of telling a different audience how exciting this this opera is without them having to sit for 16 hours in a theatre. One thing really struck me, which is that for a long period of, of the cycle, there were just one or two singers on stage, sometimes for really long periods, but actually there's up to 150 other people working in the orchestra, behind the scenes, uh, backstage, to make those two performers uh, do what they do to the best of their ability. I wanted to find a way of telling the story of those other 150 people. So I came up with this idea for the Opera Machine where we put cameras in every location we could think of except on the stage. The camera in underneath the trapdoor, there's one at Prompt Corner where the stage manager sits, there's one in the fly tower, there's one in the lighting cue box, um, and all of these sorts of different places so that you then kind of build up this really rich tapestry of uh, everyone working together to make this this opera come alive. So if you go to um, roh.org.uk slash opera machine, you can watch an act of of, uh, Die Valkura from Wagner's Ring Cycle come alive uh, and choose any single one of these 17 cameras to watch uh, for the 90 minutes of, of Act 3. And you can choose to listen to what the deputy stage manager is saying as she cues all of the uh, stage effects and lighting, or you can have commentary from the director of the show as he explains what his vision was for, for making the show. Uh, you can also, if you really want to, follow the musical score that the deputy stage manager is, is using. So it's a really um, immersive experience. Theatre is a very live experience, and anything can happen, and that's why I think uh, it's still so exciting in the 21st century, because mistakes can and, and do happen. And there's a moment uh, in, in the experience where um, uh, the character Votan, who's, who's king of the gods, he needs to, within the space of three minutes, because he comes off stage for three minutes then has to go back on, he has to be fitted with a pyrotechnic uh, canister so that when he comes back on it looks like he's holding fire. And it's a really important piece of the story and it has to work. The singer playing Votan came off to be fitted with his gas canister and the pipe and uh, the, the, it wasn't working 
um, the uh, the pyrotechnic expert hadn't been able to get the unit to work, and they'd been working for 15 minutes, and it, and it just wasn't um, wasn't playing game. So uh, you can watch as the drama unfolds, as the stage management team work out what to do with the three minutes they've got in order to send it back on, uh, hopefully holding fire. If we're looking at immersive. Um by itself, would you say that it can be more valuable than other uh, other ways of engaging audiences? Well, I think on a very superficial level, it makes a bigger splash. If you do something that hasn't been done before, uh, then then you normally get a, a fair amount of recognition for it. Uh, creating uh, an immersive uh, journey for people uh, can be really deep and meaningful. I think the challenge that we face today is that Every, uh, people's attention spans seem to be exponentially getting shorter. As content creators and developers, we need to uh, find uh, more subtle and more advanced tricks to uh, immerse them in our world, to get them in in the first place. In terms of um, the challenges then that you've, that you've come up against when you've been you know, venturing into the more immersive things, so the 24-hour hour, hour ballet and the opera machine, um, what, what challenges should anyone listening kind of potentially expect if they are going down a similar route, play around with immersive, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, that type of thing? I think it comes back to this thing of, of the, um, whatever um, immersive technology you're using, however you're, whatever tools you've got at your disposal, you're still, at the end of the day, telling a story. Whether you're trying to tell a story in one minute or over 24 hours, it all comes down to weaving a narrative that, that, that speaks to people. And if you, can't, if you can't find a way of explaining what the project or the is about in one sentence that makes people go, oh, that's, yeah, that sounds good, then um, you shouldn't be doing it. I would say uh, when you're starting out on a journey into, into AR, VR, any of these things, just, um, just write yourself three aims, two sentences into why you're doing it and what the end goal is going to be. And keep coming back to those at every single step of the way. Um, because it's easy to get sucked in and get blinded by the beautiful uh, new technology and all of that stuff without uh, about without thinking about the what the end result is. You've obviously had amazing results from you know the opera machine, the the twenty four hour um, dance, um, the ballet. So what would if you were to say for the the opera machine, um, you know two or three um, key results from that? What what would those be? I think what I did with the opera machine and which I was really really excited about was um, how amazing it's turned out to be a, a masterclass in stage management there's nothing out there where you can watch a video or see how a, a true world-class stage manager directs a show and it, it's um, it's a it's a career path which uh, I think alienates a lot of people because they don't understand what stage managers do we've broken down a huge amount of barriers with, with the Opera Machine and it's now one of the uh, go-to pieces of content for anybody who wants to uh, find out more about stage management or people who are trained to be stage managers themselves. Looking back on the project kind of as a whole, what do you think the biggest investment was? So whether that be money or time I guess? I would say the best investment was two things. One was um, 
what we learned as an organization in, in, in making our first true 360 video because it, it, was, it was quite a different medium from what we're used to. And number two, I think um, there's, there's a sort of there's an impetus on us to uh, lead the sector in, in uh, digital innovation and using new technologies. I think it's, it's worth us uh, doing these things first in order that we can share our learnings with the rest of the sector and hopefully they can they could benefit from that. And uh, just to kind of finish this off, Tom, um, what's next in the pipeline for kind of digital projects at the Royal Opera House? Well, I'm, I'm in the process of doing something quite fun with our orchestra. We're not the first uh, orchestra to do this, um, but I hope what we're going to do with it is, is quite interesting. We uh, fitted uh, several of the players up with GoPro cameras, either on their bodies or on their instruments and then we put a 360 camera rig um, just behind the conductor's head. Hopefully we'll offer this amazing immersive experience where you could be in our auditorium in 360 degrees as the orchestra are playing uh, the Rossini William Tell Overture but you can then uh, via hotspots choose to watch from a, any, any one of 14, 15 different orchestra players' perspectives and what it's like to be sat in that seat uh, playing that music. That'll be quite fun, and that's coming out in a, in a month or two. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time today, Tom. It's been really interesting. I think some of the things that you said about just trying to keep ahead, you know, there's a danger that people just lose interest in some of the, you know, these amazing arts. It's an amazing privilege to work here with uh, some of the greatest artists, dancers, yeah, nice. singers, musicians in the world. So, um it's a huge amount of fun. So that's Den, the content marketing podcast brought to you from Brown Content. We'll see you next time. Bye.